And the last thing that I want to say to allies of any kind in any context, don't expect a trophy. That every time you show up in solidarity, hopefully, for someone else who's experiencing their own particular kind of oppression, you're already, when you show up, too late. Timothy Patrick McCarthy is an award-winning historian whose work focuses on human rights and social movements. He teaches at Harvard Kennedy School and is founding director of the Sexuality, Gender and Human Rights Program at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy. He's a respected leader in the LGBTQ community and was a founding member of President Obama's LGBT Leadership Council. Today on The Dive, in conversation with Zoya Saroy, he discusses the importance of this moment, activism in times of social media, and why this is a protest like no other. Hello. Hi. How are you? Good, good. I mean, good, considering. Where... Yeah, no, I, I always feel like uh, that's the wrong thing to, how are you holding up, I guess, is yeah. the, more of the, the question. Yeah. Well, um, Professor McCarthy, first of all, thank you so much for coming on the dive. Um, you not only have studied social movements for many, many years, but you have been an activist long before that. And I just wanted to start by asking you, how is it that you got involved in activism? Yeah. So I would say there are a, a couple of pieces to that. So the first is that I was raised in a family of um, factory workers. My grandparents come from immigrant stock and were um, grew up in poverty and uh, were factory workers. My grandmother, my father's mother, was um, a, a first in our family. She was the first person to go to college. And she had to run away from, from home to do that because my great-grandfather didn't think that school was necessary for girls. Got a degree, went to New York City and became a New York City public school teacher and then became a, a union uh, teacher, uh, activist, and a trailblazing educator. My parents were public school teachers. And so I was raised in a home of people who um, had, you know, big aspirations around opportunity and equity. Education was very important. Um, hard work, even if it was exploitative, hard work had dignity. And so I grew up in that kind of a home. It was also a, a Catholic home um, with uh, real social justice values at the core of our family. And so we were people who were constantly in service and doing work in the community. Then when I graduated from high school and came to college, um, I graduated from high school in June of when the tanks rolled into Tiananmen Square. When I came to college, my first year of college was um, the Berlin Wall came crumbling down. The fall of my junior year, the Soviet Union dissolved. Uh, then the Nelson Mandela walked out of prison in South Africa. Um, my junior year, the L.A. Um, race, rebellion, <laughs> riots, whatever you want to call it, um, uh, exploded. Uh, Bill Clinton was elected in the fall of my senior year, ending the long Reagan era. So I came of age at a time, and then of course, overlaid onto all of that was the end of the Cold War, the AIDS crisis, so many other things that were going on. And so when I came to college, I came to college in this really tumultuous, 
world historical time that felt quite revolutionary in some ways, and it was, with the end of the Cold War, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the end of apartheid in South Africa, etc. And so I got swept up in that campus activism, but then I got involved in a lot of local initiatives um, against homelessness and for equitable education, racial justice work in the community. Um, and that was really formative. And that was a time in college when I came into Harvard College thinking that I was going to concentrate in economics and or government. And I ended up switching to history and literature and African-American studies. Mm -hmm. Because I also happened to be at Harvard at a time when they did a, they did a cluster hire of black scholars and scholars who did work in African-American studies, mostly history and literature, political scientists and sociology. So I was here at a kind of renaissance moment for black studies or African-American studies. And so I began to take those classes. And that's significant because at the same time that I was doing a lot of activism, social justice work and public service work in the community, I was also studying the history of race relations, slavery and freedom, civil rights struggles, labor struggles, et cetera. And those two things in a way really uh, created a convergence for me politically and intellectually that really transformed me. So. You know, all of that as a kind of growing up and coming of age set me flowing mm -hmm. into a life that has really been devoted to education and teaching, uh, to history and history making, to public service and social justice activism. And those things for me have never been compartmentalized. They've always been very much parts of, my, uh, of myself that I can't ever sort of put away or do away with. So um, I've always been a kind of scholar and a teacher and an activist simultaneously. No justice! No peace! No justice! No peace! No racist police! You mentioned many um, periods of time that have been very important in um, in social justice protests and undoubtedly one of those times is now um, in the past weeks protests have erupted in somewhat 700 cities across the country um, as after the three killings uh, made the headlines that of Ahmad Arbery, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd um, a lot of people have compared it to previous times in US history particularly 1968, uh, the year that Dr. King got assassinated. How do you think this situation right now fits in the historical context? Yeah. Well, the first thing I would say is that this is an extraordinary time for many, many reasons, and we can get into that. But uh, what we're witnessing specifically with this uh, um, incredible outpouring of protest energy and, and channeled rage and quite bold demands on the society and the state um, is remarkable and it's extraordinary. We don't know how it's going to play out and how it will end or continue, but we do have to appreciate the fact that I can't remember a time in history certainly not in my lifetime. I was born in 1971. I just turned 48, 49, so I'm almost half a century in at this point. I can't remember a time where we had this kind of sustained mobilization of protest mm -hmm. day in and day out for now over two weeks 
in every single state of the union that we've seen mobilizations and protests in a sustained daily way in every state and we've just never seen that before certainly not in my lifetime and, and so, what, sorry for interrupting but what makes you think that this particular moment uh, sparked so much outrage from the public um, yeah, i mean no. Yeah. Police violence has certainly existed before, and a lot of people have mentioned that in 2014, when Eric Garner was um, died in the uh, the hands of the police and um, was filmed, the the outrage was hardly comparable. What about now is so different? Yeah. So that's a great question. And I think anytime something like this, something extraordinary like this happens, we have to ask those exactly those questions. Sort of why this, why now? I think most immediately, the Black Lives Matter movement, which uh, began as a response to the killing, the murder of Trayvon Martin in 2012, and then the acquittal of George Zimmerman in 2013. That's where you first see the, the hashtag Black Lives uh, matter with um, you know from the the three sort of tri founders of the movement Alicia Garza and Patrice Cullors and and, and Opal Tometi and that began on, as a social media expression that became a hashtag that then became a movement both in virtual space and in real space which is important I think the 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 yoking together of the the virtual reality and the actual reality is something that's part of the power. Of Black Lives Matter, like a twin engine in a sense. And so you have this movement for Black Lives that has uh, been growing and evolving over much of the last decade. And so in an immediate sense, what you see now is in some ways a kind of scaling up and out of a movement that has been laying its foundations in response to these ongoing murders of black people by vigilante violence or by state violence in the form of policing or otherwise um, that's been building so you first you have Trayvon Martin then you have Eric Garner and, and Michael Brown which then led to the Ferguson uprising and rebellion of the summer of 2014 you see this kind of continuing over time each time there's a new video or there's a new police shooting of an unarmed black person um, i mean the list of name names grow the outrage deepens and the expression of protest expands and so when you have in these most recent weeks the video of ahmaud arbery being murdered by white vigilantes essentially um, and then you have the news of Breonna Taylor, because we don't have the videotape right. because the cops who, who burst into her home when she was sleeping in her own bed between shifts as an EMT turned the body cams off. So we have no videos of Breonna Taylor. And Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, um, you know, were, were, were killed earlier than George Floyd, who of course is the, uh, many people see as the kind of final tipping point because we have that video of the eight minutes and 46 seconds where he's being not only cuffed, but tortured and then ultimately murdered. And we see all of that evolve and take place over that time. And so this most recent state of murders 
and Tony McDade is in there, and there are others, names we don't even yet know, videos we haven't yet seen, also the Amy Cooper video um, uh, in Central Park. I mean, all of this was a kind of concentrated constellation of injustice that we've been able to view and witness that has, I think, sparked something different in this time in terms of scale. But the foundations for this have been laid by the Black Lives Matter movement over the course of the last seven or eight years. So I think that's very important in immediate context. I also think there are some other contexts here, right? So I, I, had a, I had a Turkish journalist last week ask me a question like, why this right now? And I kind of casually said, but I've been thinking about it more deeply since, that we have several contexts. One is the immediate context of the eight minutes and 46 seconds in which George Floyd is tortured and murdered for the whole world to see. Then we have the three or so month context of the COVID crisis, which has both been a time when so many people have been forced to shelter in place or asked or required or mandated to shelter in place. But it's also been a pandemic, a global pandemic that has placed into very sharp relief the pre-existing injustices and inequities in American society, which include very forcefully the racial disparities and the socioeconomic disparities that uh, create the reality where African Americans have been disproportionately burdened by the global pandemic here, both in terms of their representation as frontline essential workers mm -hmm. and as people who are more susceptible to testing positive and getting COVID uh, to begin with. And then they're overrepresented, disproportionately represented, particularly in key areas across the country in the death toll. And so African Americans have been disproportionately burdened as laborers, as, as people who are sick and people who are dying, and then their families have to deal with all of that and their communities have to deal with all of that too. And then we're all locked we're under sort of quote unquote lockdown. So that's that context too. The last three months have been placing all of that into relief. Then you have the context of the three and a half years of the Trump administration and the Trump presidency, where we have a racist in chief who has never for one day not articulated his racism and his white supremacy, his law and order authoritarianism um, for all the world to see. And that too falls disproportionately on black people and other people of color and people who are vulnerable in our society. And so we have a president who is an, an, an unabashed racist, right? We can get into more of that if you'd like, and a white supremacist. He's not just an anti-black and anti-immigrant and anti-Latino racist. He's also a xenophobe and he's also an authoritarian and he's also a white supremacist. So that's, a, I mean, that's its own toxic uh, virus, <laughs> uh, political virus. And then of course you have the long, long history and the Black Lives Matter movement is one of them of four plus centuries of enslavement and Jim Crow and anti-black violence and police violence and surveillance and extraction and exploitation of black people and their labor, it never ends. And there's one other thing I wanna mention is that recently, because I think the Black Lives Matter movement has been such a powerful force in American society, we also have coincidental to that, a, a, a larger national conversation and debate about all of these issues. Right, that has been sparked by the New York Times 1619 project that Nicole Hannah-Jones just won the Pulitzer Prize for. Which is, uh, which is an attempt to highlight um, African-American history and exactly. the injustice over in the historical context. That's of, of lynching, racial terror lynching right. and 
vigil white vigilante violence against black people and the long history of this right and you have your books my dear friend uh, Khalil Muhammad's book on the condemnation of blackness which looks at the criminalization of black people from the 19th century all the way to now like Holly Elizabeth Hinton uh, who's written a brilliant book from the war on poverty to the war on crime which shows how the 1960s and 1970s 1980s till now has produced the kind of crisis of mass incarceration from contexts of anti-black racism and poverty and so forth. So we're having you know, Anna DuVernay's award-winning documentary, 13th, right? So we're having in the United States a much more robust and I think quite radical conversation about not just race and race relations, but about racism and white supremacy as a systemic problem that is also historical. So all of that, I think, produces the deep context for this. Um, and, and that's what is leading to this outpouring, not just a black rage and black protest and black demands for all sorts of transformations in this systematized oppression, um, but all sorts of other people too, who historically have never really been willing to step up and to speak out, to be allies, to be in solidarity, to march in the streets, to make these demands, right? There's been a significant increase, just one data point, in public opinion support for Black Lives Matter in the last two weeks. It's one of the most significant spikes in public opinion, or swings in public opinion from people who were either opposed or not on board to people who are now fully embracing the demands and the values of Black Lives Matter. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you about that because in a short period of time, Black Lives Matter as a movement has managed to garner so much support from sort of centrist, left, moderate supporters, which are essential in, in the end, uh, um, leading to political change, etc. But it's quite remarkable, this swing. What do you attribute it to? What do you think is the, you know, really important factor when we're, we analyze this? Um, well, I think some of it goes back to what I was just saying. I mean, yeah. I think people are sick of Trump and Trump's just grotesque racism um, in all of its forms. I think it, the video is impossible to to nuance or yeah. to or to equivocate on. I mean, the, the the whole country has seen some of us over and over and over again um, the the arrest, torture, and murder of George Floyd. And there's no world in which anybody who isn't who doesn't believe that all black lives should be extinguished can look at that video and think anything other than the fact that these cops have got to go. Mm. And that this is, this is totally unjust. This was a murder killing a lynching. Right. So I think there's that social media plays a role in that, which is one of the, I think the genius moves of black lives matter, which is why it's so different from, or different in many ways from previous expressions of the black freedom struggle, right. They're, 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 their um, seizing or occupying of social media and then deploying social media to their benefit, I think is huge. And the video and its circulation and, and all of that, I think is, is another piece of this. Um, you know, and I do think that at some point, you know, people, there's always a tipping point when mm -hmm. it comes to injustice. There's always something, right? The, in the civil rights era, it was the Emmett Till lynching. Right or the or the, the the lynching or the murder of the of the three civil rights activists in in, in the in, during Mississippi Freedom Summer, the Emmett Till lynching was again that that was Mamie uh, 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 Mobley Till decided to have an open casket 
funeral for Emma Till so that the world then brought, I think it was Jet Magazine, brought uh, Jet Magazine into, uh, uh, it might have been Ebony, it was either Ebony or Jet Magazine that, that um, video, that, that, that uh, photographed his, hit her, you know, next to the, the coffin of, of her son's mutilated body. And he was a child, you know, teenager. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there had been many other lynchings. By that point, there were, you know, over 4,000 lynchings of black people that had taken place in the United States. And yet that was the spark or a spark at that moment. We know today, I mean, we already listed other names. George Floyd is hardly the only uh, black person who has, who, has, who, has, um, who has been murdered in that way, right? Black person has been murdered in that way by police officers in the United States, right? We, this goes back to before the nation was even founded. So, um, you know, so I think it, 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 it context matters. I do think that we're at an explosive moment where the United, some of the United States has to die, not, not black people, but I think there are things about the United States, the grotesque inequalities of wealth, right? The entrenched systems of poverty, the institutionalized forms of anti-black racism and white supremacy, the kind of lukewarm embrace of diversity as opposed to racial justice, right? These things all need to go away. The constant kind of, um, you know, reform initiatives that never quite get to the kind of radical place that they need to because so much of this happens within, as you said, within systems that do have to be engaged if we are to move things forward on a policy level. So, um, so I think that, you know, all of that accounts for this. I don't think it's any one, any one factor. Another thing I would mention is that I tend to resist the tendency to uh, compare and contrast mm -hmm. what's happening now to the past. Right? I'm a historian, so I believe the past can really help to inform and illuminate and contextualize what we're experiencing at any moment in history. But we're never going to experience in our time the exact same thing or something so different from what happened in the past that um, that we, we want to compare and contrast them. And I think one thing that happens sometimes in moments where, where black pain, suffering, anger, outrage, aspiration, right, struggle becomes centered, which is one of the things that's happening now, that there's too often an impulse, especially among white people and non-black people, to compare it to the civil rights movement and to compare it to a version of the civil rights movement mm -hmm. where Martin Luther King is the kind of central hero, Rosa Parks is the central figure, when in fact the civil rights movement was not, a, 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 it, we remember it as a national movement which had centralized goals, but in fact the civil rights movement or that modern manifestation of the black freedom struggle had many different campaigns in many different areas with many different strategies and tactics and many different personalities leading and, and center, at center stage in those struggles. I think it's really important to remember that, that the civil rights movement had lots of disagreements. There were lots of tensions. There were people who didn't like each other. There were um, local campaigns that had different things. In Mississippi, there was a voting rights campaign, and there were freedom rides, and there were sit-ins in other parts of the country, and there were you know, children's marches and nonviolent civil disobedience and, and so forth. So there were lots of different local manifestations of black freedom that were not all aligned. Right. If they were aligned, they were aligned in their expression of 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 outrage over the ongoing injustices against black people that they had in common. And that's, I think, an important thing that when we make historical references, we also have to remember that 
history and the way we learned about history and what actually happened are, are two different uh, things. Um, but one thing, and I know you mentioned you don't like to compare and contrast, but one thing that's different this time around is that social media ha hadn't existed before. And many, and with the Me Too movement and with the current protest, what is interesting, and I think I I'm fascinated by it, is that it involves sort of to think about racism in all forms. It's not just about police brutality, it's about food magazine hiring um, um, that diverse people and paying them unequally. It's about, it's in, in all forms you can imagine. Um, mm -hmm. Well, <clears throat> I think social media is a huge driver. As I said, it's in some ways the, the, the virtual reality social media world that Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement and others have, have seized um, in this moment and, and marshaled in this moment um, is really important. And, and every, um, every historical era has its own kind of technological advance, right? Whether you're talking about the printing press, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Or you're talking about photography or you're talking about radio or right. television, 24-hour news stations, social media, right? At every stage in American history, there have been technological shifts and, and, and advances that have been in some ways taken advantage of by folks on the outside of power. And that's one thing that I think is so powerful about social media is that we are all the producers, the consumers, and the circulators of news and opinion and of all sorts of other stuff. And, and so the power, the good part of social media is it is a profoundly democratizing venue and media that has incredible potential in terms of protest mobilization. We've seen this with the Arab Spring. We saw this with the Iranian Revolution. We've seen this, with, I mean, in, in a lot with the Me Too movement. There are so many examples of how social media has been sort of marshaled to, to do this work. The other thing that happens, right, and the Me Too movement is a good example, as is Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter and Me Too as sort of hashtags that moments and, and messages that become movements and mobilizations um, are initially responding to a very specific thing, right? In, in the case of Black Lives Matter, it was in response very specifically to the acquittal of George Zimmerman in the murder, the vigilante murder of Trayvon Martin, right? Now it's about, you know, defund the police is not just a defunding of the police, it's a, it's a refunding, a redistribution of resources to public safety, to public education, to public health, to community, you know, uh, to, to community resources, right? That's a much broader agenda, right? What starts in a very specific context as Black Lives Matter becomes something much bigger and more transformative and I think really quite frankly more radical. Same thing with Me Too, right? Me Too was <coughs> from its inception, again, a hashtag, which was about a set of lived experiences around sexual assaults mm -hmm. initially. Mm -hmm. People opened Fueled by the, the Harvey Weinstein uh, Right. Specifically, it was yeah. around Harvey Weinstein, right? But then it became, then it was Harvey Weinstein as a sexual predator, and there are other men like him, and I've experienced this too. But then it becomes a much broader campaign for gender equity, yeah. right? The equal pay for equal work, and women's power in the workplace, and in politics, and the dismantling of the patriarchy, and the eradication of misogyny. And so these 
very specific things that might be sparked by George Zimmerman on the one hand or Harvey Weinstein on the other then become something that, that, that is much more potentially radical and transformative. Um, in terms of dismantling, you know, white supremacy and anti-black racism on the one hand and misogyny and patriarchy on the other. And if we get rid of those two things, right, we're well on our way to a world of justice. Well right. on our way to a world and, of justice. And those two are also very linked. Um, okay. On this topic, because now with the movement, we're looking at the big picture. Do you think that that will make Black Lives Matter harder to die down as a cycle of protests that happen and then you know people say okay it like dies down then the next uh, um, um, brutal case happens and then it sparks another round um, do you think that makes it also different in how they will continue mm -hmm. yeah the question of momentum is one that I think is always at the core of any of our understandings about social movements, right? You know, when I think about movements, I think about the four M's, the, 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 the moment, the, the spark, the thing that sort of gets it going, whether that's the video of, of George Floyd being murdered uh, or the lynching of Emmett Till. It could be an, a political event. It could be the passage of the Fugitive Slave Law. It could be the um, election of Donald Trump. <laughs> um, but that moment is important. Like, what is that moment? Why did that form the spark? But then after we have a moment, right, we have to have some kind of mobilization, some kind of mobilization of resources and of people that, that keeps that energy flowing from the initial spark. And then we need a movement to build the infrastructure and the architecture of something that can, that can help that along, right, where the people and the resources have somewhere to go, right? And these aren't necessarily sequential, they're interrelated in this way. Uh, because once you have the infrastructure and the architecture, you can then enlist more people and raise more money, right, or, or resources. Um, but that moment in mobilization and movement building are all very important, but so is momentum, keeping it going and keeping it going over time. What is the kind of sustained momentum of any movement? I don't believe because the re historical record is clear on this, that all movements need to last forever. I mean, the goal should be to put ourselves out of business, right? I would, I, I, I love the, well, I don't love, but I, I've been struck by people who are out there with these placards. Same thing was true of the women's marches and the anti-war, uh, anti-Iraq war protests that I was involved in and the, the current protests against, um, or for racial justice and against police violence. Um, you know, the signs that said, I, I can't believe I'm still out there marching for this, right? And some of them are prof more profane than others. But it's like, are you kidding me? You know, what, I'm still out here doing this? And I remember being at those anti-Iraq war marches and, and war anti-war marches even before Afghanistan started, uh, the war in Afghanistan, with these old folks from the Vietnam era who are like in their 70s now who are like, I can't believe that we are still doing this. And here we are again. So I do think that, but I don't think social movements have to last forever, right? The Occupy movement was 
in, in historical terms, a kind of blip on the radar screen. I don't, and that doesn't, that's not me diminishing it, but it had a profound impact. Mm -hmm. The conversation that the, the, the spark of the Great Recession that brought about, that was the moment, right, for the Occupy movement to emerge. And the Occupy movement was brutally suppressed, right? Talk about police violence, right? The state came crushing down on, on the Occupy movement eventually. But for a year or so and, 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 and more, the Occupy movement completely changed the conversation about wealth distribution and about capitalism and about poverty. The fact that we have so many people in the United States who are willing to entertain Bernie Sanders as a credible and viable presidential candidate in two election cycles now as a very full-throated democratic socialist and you have all generation of my, many of my students are I'm, i've been a democratic socialist since 1994 but you know but that you know i, I didn't say that in polite company right you know nobody <laughs> I was crazy now if you say you're a democratic socialist people pat you on the back and ask when the next meeting is and, you know, i think occupy had something to do with that yeah Right, the Occupy movement, I mean, the idea that we have the language of the 1% and the 99%, that's all Occupy, right? That wasn't Bernie Sanders. That was the Occupy movement gave us that language. And so there's a way in which even the most short-lived movements um, can have a lasting and enduring impact, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's something we have to pay attention to. That's why I'm not um, as keen to sort of want to compare and contrast because i think compare and contrast leads us to a place where if we compare favorably then this movement now is okay mm. but if this movement now is really different from this movement back in the day this movement is actually not doing what it needs to do i think there's too much that flows that there's too much dismissal and and chiding or scolding that comes from the compare and contrast, a simple compare and contrast tendency. I wanna inform and evolve. You know, I mean, I think it gets back to those M's, right? You gotta seize a moment, right? You have to have a message that you can circulate through some kind of media, either you control, you know, inventing your own media, which the abolitionists did, right? The abolitionists created a whole print culture, literary culture, and, and, and visual culture to, advance their cause because they were completely locked out of the formal institutions of law and politics and even economics other than being exploited and extracted for their labor. But the Black Lives Matter movement is, has, has, as I said, marshaled social media in a, in a way that's quite profound and then really influenced the way that the mainstream media is covering this particular moment. I'm struck by how many journalists on television are talking about white supremacy and systemic racism and police brutality and they're having the whole you know panels to discuss defund the police i mean I, <laughs> you had told me a month ago that every time i turn on msnbc or cnn i mean fox news is all another point but every, every time you turn on npr any of these mainstream media uh, channels they're all talking in this language right? this is the language of of the movement and so they've been very effective in terms of shaping that so they have to do that and they're doing that they just got to keep doing that and then you know, you, you do have to figure out how to sustain momentum. And, and momentum is sustained in lots of different ways. Momentum can be sustained by mobilizing more resources to be able to fund your work. Momentum can be uh, uh, sustained by growing the ranks of the people who are in solidarity with you, who are willing to do that work alongside of you. That poses challenges too, because once you get more people in, it's gonna get messier, especially when you know white allies or non-black allies start to, to join, the, join the fray. Um, you know, and they bring their own stuff with them, implicit, explicit bias, 
good intentions that have uh, less than good impacts, right? There are all sorts of um, coalition building in movements is very hard, but growing the ranks, growing the resources is important. You know, momentum can also be propelled by policy uh, successes and political uh, energy, right? The fact that you have, you know, Joe Biden, I mean, this, this, this presidential election right now is about policing and race in America. Right right, is, as much as it is about anything else. And that will probably continue. And that, the fact that you have, you know, as awkward as it was, congressional, you know, representatives wearing kente cloth proposing, you know, pretty far-reaching pieces of legislation, at least for Congress, <laughs> um, far-reaching pieces of legislation, much far beyond what they've proposed before. You have bills being named for Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. Right. You have city councils who are defunding the police, right? School districts who are saying they don't want cops in their schools. I mean, the, the, those are political successes and policy successes that then also can propel a movement. One thing I do want to say though, and then I'll, I'll, I'll uh, stop my, my flow here, is that you know, when it comes in America, one of the things that I joke with my students about, and, and, and sorry, you probably remember this, I always say that you know, be careful because the Democratic Party can be the place where great social movements go to die, right? That, that there's a, that there's a, a, a particularly, um, you, know, uh, you know, turbulent relationship between reform and radicalism, between the movements on the outside of politics and the the, the politicians and the elected officials and policymakers on the inside of politics. And though there's almost no escape from having to figure out how you're going to engage one another and work together to, to push things forward, um, there is also a tendency on the part of those on the inside of politics to want to co-opt mm -hmm. and to want to move the radicalism to reform from the margin to the center um, as a way to sort of quell the turbulence. Right. And, and quiet the protesters. And if you're an outside politics person, which the Black Lives Matter movement is, then you have to make sure that you don't let them do that. Because that, that's, that, that's dangerous. And that can ultimately um, diminish a movement in terms of its energy and its power. Can you um, talk a bit more about that? Hmm. Yeah, so I mean, I think that, you know, when I mean, think about the LGBTQ movement, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the, I mean, which, which be, you know, one of its beginnings is the Stonewall Rebellion, which was a, a, a rebellion, an armed rebellion, a violent rebellion against police surveillance and police mm -hmm. violence that led to many arrests and so forth and so on. I mean, that was a, a movement where people were talking about liberation and power and revolution. And then over time, you know, there was a, a time when some part of the movement decided that it was going to work within the system and sort of work with the Democratic Party to get legislation passed. And that, that led to, I think, a, a, a moderation in the movement, not, not in every piece or by every person, um, but, but it does. And I think that you have to be careful about that because the, whatever legislation comes, whether you're talking about the, the, the civil rights Act or the Voting Rights Act, or you're talking about the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, or you're talking about something else, even this policing bill that, that they're currently debating or versions of it in Congress, that final piece of legislation could be historic in the sense that it could be as far-reaching or more far-reaching than anything that's come before it. But it's not going to be the radical transformative thing that, um, that the activists themselves were demanding.
It started at Trafalgar Square, a show of solidarity with those in the United States and across the world. My country! My country! My country! Angry about the death of George Floyd, who died in police custody in the US state of Minnesota, while an officer kneeled on his neck to pin him down. With thousands gathered, the message was simple. Black lives matter and we're protesting against what happened with our fellow citizen in the USA. We in the UK, there's absolutely no way we can be smug about anything. Most of the deaths in police custody here have happened without a single shot being fired. I read on The Economist today that they said America is not only a country, it's an idea. And what's happening here um, has spurred protests from Brazil, where they also had issues with um, racial police violence, um, uh, to Australia with uh, Aboriginal rights, to Europe, who's contending with a dark history um, and a very complex history. Um, what, what do you make of it? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. Um, you know, there's no society that I know of that doesn't have its own problems with institutionalized oppression and prejudice and different places that plays out in different ways. I mean, even the racial injustices of Brazil come from a history that is very different from what the history of race and racism is in the United States. There are some through lines and of course, all roads lead back to slavery. Um, but, you know, in other countries and, and other contexts, it's religion or it's ethnicity or it's, it's uh, gender or sexuality or a combination of these things or a history of, of colonialism and post-colonialism, of tribal warfares, right? There's not a, there's not a, just as there's never been any human society that hasn't had some form of slavery in it, over time and that slavery looks different across time and space it's still there in nearly every human society in the history of the world that we know of and same with institutionalized forms of inequality and, and oppression and prejudice that each society has its own its own things to reckon with and some places have done a better job of that right i think of you know rwanda and i think of germany two places that have experienced genocide that have put into place in different ways right in germany one of the ways that they have reckoned with their history of the holocaust uh, and the slaughter of you know, millions of jews and also other people who were considered disposable on the margins of society at that time is that they've transformed how they teach history they've transformed how they think about their own past as part of their national identity. And I'm not saying there aren't problems in Germany, but I do think that the commitment to an honest reckoning with Nazi Germany and Hitler and Goebbels and the, and the Holocaust um, as something they have to lean into and shine a light on as a way to heal. Um, but every society has a reckoning to have. And for the United States, our central reckoning is the reckoning that we must have over the the the, the dual um, the 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 the, um, the the twins of our original sin, which was the enslavement of people of African descent, African Americans, Black folks, and the displacement 
and genocide of indigenous people who were here before any of the European colonists came to settle. And that twin legacy of what we might call the original sin or the original sins of the country have never been fully reckoned with. And that reckoning requires also a reckoning with whiteness and with, with, with all that flows from the construction of white identity as a kind of conglomeration of all of these non-indigenous and non-African descended or black identities. And, and what comes from that, right? That there isn't a white person in America who isn't wrapped up in the system, even though white people like to think of themselves as individuals, right? They work hard, they get ahead, or they're, you know, I'm not a racist, I'm a good cop, right? You know, there's all this individualism that is so much a part of the kind of ethos of the culture of the country here. We have to get over that, right? I mean, the fact of the matter is that like, I am gonna have a little inheritance from my family because my grandfather who was Irish, who became white in America, served in World War II and got the GI Bill and a loan from the Federal Housing Administration to move out of Harlem where he lived with black people before the war into a suburb that was growing after World War II. And his black friends in Harlem stayed in Harlem. They didn't get the GI Bill and they didn't get that loan from FHA. And even if they got the loan from FHA, they wouldn't have been able to move into that suburb because of redlining. And I, as a, as a white person who doesn't, who's not possessively invested in my whiteness, <laughs> uh, as George Lipsitz, the famous scholar, has written about, I benefit from that. I benefit from that, right? The descendant, uh, there are grandchildren of my grandfather's black friends from Harlem who have a very different life right now than I have, I am sure. And part of that is that systemic racism and white supremacy and anti-black racism that is built and cooked into the system, as I said, from before the birth of the nation. We have to have a reckoning with that. That is a reckoning with our history. It's a reckoning with our racial identities. It's a reckoning with violence. It's a reckoning with power and privilege and the denial of those things. And it's a reckoning with the fact that too many of us, when we think about America only as an idea, use that as a kind of scapegoat because if America is an idea it's an idea about freedom it's an idea about equality it's an idea about rights it's an idea about democracy but it's not just an idea right it's a place full of people and it's messy and that mess is the result of both the fact that this is such a multicultural place that struggles to get along and coexist and to figure out how we all can be here together. And, right, it's a problem with the fact that those ideals and ideas that keep getting trotted out as, the, as, as who and what America is have never been a reality for many, many people in the United States. And that if it's been a reality, if, 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 if a black person has achieved some rights and some freedom and some opportunity and, so, and has been able to escape the brutal injustices that George Floyd's death raised up for us, that's an exception. 
And that person who's an exception is still carrying the multiple generations of trauma that being part of this long history that requires a reckoning entails. I was struck last night, I was in a conversation with several of uh, my black colleagues from different schools across the country. And one of them said that, you know, there isn't a black person in America who is participating in these protests right now, which is a huge risk on so many levels, who doesn't come to this protest with trauma. Yeah. That every single one of us has trauma that's intergenerational and still potentially a reality right in front of us every single day that compels us both to protest and also to have, to, to, to have deep concern, right? For ourselves and for our families, our children, our people, but also deep concern for a country that is in many ways running out of time. And America is running out of time to fix these things. That this reckoning cannot be punted or delayed or deferred to another generation. Now is the time, and that's what I think is so extraordinary about this moment and this historical convergence of so many things that are causing us pain. I think this is a moment of reckoning and of clarity where we might finally figure out how to do this. Because if we don't, I think we're over. I don't think America survives this. And I would like to try to help us survive this, but we have to do the tough work, tougher than ever before. And speaking of the tough work, like you said, for the allies, even for those with the best of intentions and who have worked for the cause, you still don't enter the protest or the cause with the same set of trauma and the same set of of things that are at stake so what needs to happen there in the side of the movement that doesn't belong to the community yeah well i think we all have to figure that out right i i think when it comes to white people in particular and when it comes to anti-black violence and racism the vast majority of those experiences and that reality over time has been white produced and perpetuated right white people are the perpetrators of that violence against black people um, and the people who have created the systems. I mean, people talk all the time <laughs> to perpetuate it, right? We're the perpetrators who have created the systems to perpetuate. And people say all the time, oh my God, the system's broken. But that's only from the perspective of like a justice framework, right? The system may actually be working exactly the way it was designed to work. And both of those things are indictments. If it's broken, that's an indictment. And if it's working perfectly, that's also an indictment. And so white people have to understand that. They have to shift their gaze and their perspective. They, we, have to reckon with our own embeddedness and inheritance of this system and in this system. Just as I said before, I have to reckon with what privilege and power I have as a white person who's in solidarity with black people and other people of color on issues of justice. I have to reckon with what I benefit from and how I benefit from and what has produced that power and that privilege. I have to figure out how to use it to oppose the very system that has given me that power and privilege. That is not easy to do. Most people don't want to do that. You have to take the privilege and power that you have gotten 
unjustly from a system and turn it around on the system. And that is, whew, that comes with risk and consequences. And you need to be very brave to do that and consistent and persistent to do that. And I also think that white people in particular and all non-black people need to read more. <laughs> they need to read more. They need to Google things. They need to listen, right? We are in many ways in America miseducated. I talked about Germany okay. before doing that transformative work within education. Americans are miseducated about race and slavery and Jim Crow and, 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 and all of that, right? Everything else, right? My course on, on LGBT history and policy and politics is a course that's meant to undo the miseducation or the non-education that, that everyone has, including myself, Everything I teach in my Queer Nation course is stuff I've, I've taught myself. <laughs> it's, I didn't study any of that stuff when I was in school, right? I've done it since then. And now I'm trying to teach it in a school because I think that's important. And so we have to read, we have to learn, we have to listen and so forth. And then we also, I think, as white people in particular, and non-black people of color too, not center ourselves in these moments, in these movements and not to sort of bring all of our stuff, not to say, well, you need to do this, or you, you shouldn't say this, or, you know, well, when I did it over here, this worked, right? But to follow, not to lead, right? Mm -hmm. To amplify rather than frame or reframe. And the last thing that I wanna to say to allies of any kind in any context, don't expect a trophy. That every time you show up, in solidarity, hopefully, for someone else who's experiencing their own particular kind of oppression, you're already, when you show up, too late. Welcome, thanks for coming, but you're already late, so catch up. And that has served me well, that idea. Don't expect a trophy. Liberation is the reward. Justice is the reward. Equality, freedom are the rewards. A world where we don't have to do this anymore <laughs> is the reward. No trophies, just a new world. And that's more than enough for any of us. That's, that's a great ending. Professor McCarthy, thank you so much. Like always, it's such a pleasure to talk to you and listen to you. It's been a pleasure. It's great, as always, to, to talk to you and to hear you and great questions. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for joining us on The Dive. This episode was produced by Zoya Saroy, Paloma Strelitz and Judd Olenoff. If you enjoyed this discussion, please share it on social media. We welcome feedback and guest ideas. Just write to us at ideas at thedive.media.